Hey, it's me, Danielle. Super glad you're here listening, but I want to let you know that we've made some huge improvements to our sound quality. So if you listen to our Cocaine Bear episodes and wish you could hear Fran a little better, you're in luck. By episode three, we've got it ironed out. Hey man, we're new here, but we're not afraid to learn. Thanks for listening. Now, back to the show. I'm Danielle Eigelhart. I'm Fran Bishop. And this is Snow in the Mountains. Good morning. Welcome to Snow in the Mountains podcast. I'm Danielle, and I am so excited to be here in the studio with Fran today, my co-host. We are extra excited to bring you today's episode, not only because it's our first, but because this is a case of Fran's that has really blown up, and actually more so in recent years than in the 80s when it actually happened. So, before we get into the story, um, I think we should properly introduce ourselves. What do you say, Fran? Good idea. All right. So um, I'm Danielle. I am a mom to two kiddos. I've got an 11-year-old boy and an 8-year-old girl. We live in a 100-year-old farmhouse in a really teeny town here in North Georgia. Um, my husband and I do do quite a bit to take care of this <laughs> much bigger property than we're used to, and we've enjoyed uh, this new lifestyle to us so much. Previously, we were suburbanites and uh, made that big move during uh, the pandemic. So our life is quaint and busy, um, but so much fun. I'm a, I'm a small business owner. I own a little eco-friendly um, home and body care company that's online and uh, do a ton of volunteer work for our town and our local historical society and the reason I'm here with Fran is because I'm a, I'm a big true crime uh, kind of junkie. So I listen to a lot of true crime podcasts. I keep up with um, all of the, you know, cases that are happening now. I also love old cases and it's kind of how Fran and I came to be. So it was about two years ago. Um, we had just moved up here to North Georgia and I was in a little antique mall and I met this this gal who turned out to be Fran. We started chit-chatting about our lives and who we are. And she tells me that she was one of Georgia's first female uh, GBI agents. And I just knew that we were destined to be friends. So on that day that we met, do you remember, Fran, that first day I said that I thought that you should write a book and start a podcast about your adventures and your cases? And I don't even know if you'd ever considered that, but I'm excited that we're here today. I'm excited too, Danielle. It's uh, it's um, amazing and interesting how God places people in your life that directs you to a path that you often think about, but you don't really um, pursue it. Sure. And now we are, we're pursuing it. We're pursuing it. I think we've got a lot of really fun and interesting stories to share. There are many stories that I can tell. And I think one of the things that have, has drawn me to uh, do this with you, uh, I don't have any reservation. And I think that because so many of the cases now have been destroyed mm -hmm. through the state archives, uh, the only way to tell these stories is through the, the verbal record of the agents that are still alive. And uh, the most historical cases are the older cases, mm -hmm. the, the ones that um, are the, the bigger cases that were worked in the 80s and the, the 70s, the big smuggling cases. And, and um, 
those are the most interesting ones that I worked. Yeah, definitely. Um, how'd you get started in law enforcement and more importantly, um, you know, with the Georgia Bureau of Investigation as one of the first female agents, um, what did, what did your start look like? Well, I was uh, raised on a Tybee Island, small island off Savannah. And um, my parents located uh, or actually resided there. They came from New Jersey. Uh, my mother was from England. My father was from New, New Jersey and they settled there in 1950. And my father was a policeman and uh, my mother my father has also owned a motel called the Bel Air Motel on 9th and Butler Avenue. And uh, we um, had a big house, which was at the entrance of the Savannah River, where it faced the Atlantic Ocean. And we owned about 10 acres to the low water line. So Tabby was my home. It was my, my refuge, my safe place. And um, my father's uh, role in his daily actions as a police officer brought me closer to where I felt like I needed to be. We didn't have any boys in our family, and I have three younger sisters. So um, a friend of mine worked for the FBI in Savannah, and he got me an application after high school. I filled it out, didn't think anything of it, and was actually hired as a clerk in 1972. Uh, my parents couldn't afford to send me to college at the time. So I became a clerk and I did that for four years. I went to school at night, studied criminal justice, and wanted to be the first FBI agent. Well, uh, uh, J. Edgar Hoover had passed away and you know, he, uh, he, once he died, the Bureau changed dramatically and they allowed females to become special agents. So uh, the director changed and he said um, uh, all the clerks that were going to school at night wanted to be agents. Their clerical time could not be considered at, quote, executive experience. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah, wonderful. <laughs> so I had to go out and get a real job, you know, to satisfy that requirement, which was being a police officer, an accountant or a lawyer. And at the time, there were uh, these guys and young ladies staying at our motel in one of our apartments in the back. My father told me they played in a band. They drove these fast cars, and one of them had a Volkswagen bus with beer cans up to the ceiling in the back. And I thought, yeah, I guess they do play in a band. You know, I saw musical instruments in the room. And then one day I, I saw a gun under the pillow. So I went to my dad and I said, Dad, I was cleaning that room back there for me. And, and uh, there, was, uh, there was this gun under the pillow. I said, you don't need to let my sisters go back there. He says, I'll handle it. Don't you go back there. I've got it covered for you. So uh, that was my nickname for any. So he, uh, he, I guess, handled it. I didn't see any more guns back there after that. But uh, I guess after about six months, uh, this one uh, gentleman, he was tall and quite handsome. I would see him occasionally come up, you know, and drive up in his fast car, you know, and his, his, uh, his rugged and, and cowboyish kind of, uh, you know, look and definitely hippie type, you know, back as we would call it in the day. He, uh, he drove up and I walked out there to him. I was washing my car. Uh, all, all in an attempt to uh, negotiate conversation, of course. Well, sure. I mean, he sounds real good looking. <laughs> yes. So uh, 
I, uh, I spoke with him and he pulled out a badge and he says, I can show you this now because you know, our, um, our, uh, investigation is over and he, he opened it up and I just melted. I mean, I, it was, it was like the, I don't know how to describe it. It was just the path I was supposed to take. I was supposed to go forward with, you know, applying with the GBI and he's, he was a mentor of mine and in 19 and, uh, 73 and uh here we are 50 years later and i still call him occasionally and check on him that's amazing see how he's doing that's amazing well and you know i think it stands to reason obviously and should go without saying women have a place in in every line of work but particularly as an investigator that woman's intuition is something that i think is you know a really important tool on that job so I can't wait to hear your stories. I'm so excited for our listeners to get to know both of us, but really you. I mean, your credibility is so important to establish here. And, um, you know, we don't have all of the paper documents in front of us, but your ability to recall so many of these details that I've been able to fact check online um, is incredible. So I'm so honored to sit next to you and tell these stories. Um, I think everybody's going to love hearing this. Um, when we come back from commercial break, we are going to get straight into Fran's most infamous case. Not everybody has an infamous case, but the one that we're going to cover today is the cocaine bear, which has been heavily sensationalized, um, thanks in a large part to social media. Um, there's a movie about it out now in theaters. You've done several interviews, one with Vanity Fair. Um, you'll be part of a documentary that's airing on Peacock in April. Um, that's well, I think what we should do is get down to the root and tell the real story of the cocaine bear um, through the very unique lens of your law enforcement eye. Sounds good to me. All right. We'll be right back. All right, Fran. I'm ready for you to take me straight into the evidence room on this one because I've been waiting so long to hear the real story of the cocaine bear because I think think we can all agree that what we're... Well, you and I haven't seen the movie. I'm sure I'll watch it when it comes to Netflix and I can watch it for free. But I know that the movie is nowhere near what actually happened in real life, right? This is not... We need to debunk the mystery and the myth of the cocaine bear. So I, I don't think that this was a bear that went on a rampage and was a murderous bear. I think the story was actually a lot simpler than that. Right. True. Too many people think that that's what really happened. Right. That's, that's the sad part. I mean, I think <laughs> the story is interesting enough without, you know, falsified like gruesome details, but yes. I'm super excited to hear it in your words today. And there's, there's actually a lot to get into because we have two entities really in this story. We've got the bear, True. of course, and then we've got your perpetrator, Thornton. Andrew, so, Andrew Carter Thornton. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, why don't you um, kind of take us to the scene here? We're going to go back to 1985 and we're going to talk about the bear first. So, we're going to skip ahead to December, right? right? You guys found the original load of narcotic drop in September. There were several drops made in Georgia. So I'm going to back up a little bit. Um, unbeknownst to us, these loads were all connected to the bear and to Andrew Thornton. And in December, actually December the 20th of 1985, 
I was sitting in the uh, Gainesville Regional Drug Enforcement Office. At that time, I had been promoted to the assistant special agent in charge. And we were a small office yet here in Gainesville. And um, we probably had around eight agents assigned. Um, my boss at the time was special agent in charge, Gary Garner. Uh, he probably had at least 25 years of service on. And um, in 85, I had about nine years of service on. So the office had received a call, which came to me. Secretary said that there was a Department of Natural Resources uh, game warden on the phone that needed to speak to an agent. I happened to be the only one in the office. Everybody else was out on investigations. And my boss was in Atlanta at a meeting. So I took the call and uh, the officer told me that a hunter in Fannin County, Georgia, had come up on a dead bear adjacent to a large parachute and a duffel bag. The duffel bag contained residue of white powder. There was no kilos of cocaine in the duffel bag at this time. Interesting. So he said, we need help. I said, you got it. We're on the way. So I got on the radio and I dispatched two of the agents that were already on the field to the location to meet the game warden. And um, one of the agents was Paul Loggins mm -hmm. and the other agent was Ed Wright. Um, they were told to meet up with the game warden, go to the scene and radio back as to what they found. Uh, they did that. As you know, back in the, the, in 85, we had no cell phones. We only had radios. Sure. Yeah. And um, so they did. They radioed back and explained what they had found. They described the bear as being, the game ranger actually described the bear as being a um, full adult female bear, uh, approximately 15, 16 years old. Uh, weighing about 175 pounds. And if you can imagine that, uh, of course, deceased, that if you can imagine a, as everybody has seen in a movie or on a wall or somewhere, mm -hmm. right, a, a bear rug, mm -hmm. this is what they observed. Only it was smelly. Mm -hmm. It was decaying. Uh, the hair was coming off. Other animals had probably gotten into it. Yeah. And uh, there was a duffel bag uh, that had been, you know, weathered from months of laying there. Mm -hmm. And uh, the the parachute was, was attached to the duffel bag. What a bizarre scene. I mean, truly, I mean, I'm sure that this doesn't happen all that often. These components, the bear, the duffel bag, the parachute, it's mm -hmm. it's an interesting algorithm. And not one I think that has been discovered often in no, nature in this line of work. Never, probably never until now. So uh, I 
had talked with my boss in Atlanta and the director said, bring the bear mm-hmm. to the lab. So they so got this a body is different bag. than this is different than like a homicide crime scene, right? No, not so much. Okay. So what, what happens on this scene before you're removing the body of the bear? Uh, photographs. Photographs. Uh, we did photograph mm-hmm. the area and we did interview the people, the hunter, mm-hmm. and of course the game warden and uh, tried to clear the hunter to make sure that, you know, he had no involvement sure. in taking the drugs, yeah. obviously, that were removed. Um, and, you know, doing further investigation, you, you treat it just like it is. It's a crime scene. Mm-hmm. And the victim, instead of being human, is the female bear. Crazy. So we, um, so we did just that. We got a body, we secured a body bag and put the remains in the of the bear in the body bag the department of natural resources uh took um some of the bear claws and some of the bear teeth mm-hmm. to uh determine um age you know to be more precise sure. and maybe some do some biological investigation for us so that was done then um it was taken to the lab crime lab in Atlanta, Georgia. And uh, Agent Loggins called me from there and said, they're really angry. <laughs> this bear is stinking up the lab pretty bad. I Bears smell kind of terrible anyway. So, you know. Uh, it's definitely not a honey bear. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't think that the title honey bear is uh, quite as catchy as cocaine bear. No, so. no. So anyway, the uh, pathologist uh, did uh, a uh, what we call a necropsy, mm-hmm. you know, uh, like an autopsy on a human, but a necropsy on an animal. Uh, he did that, and uh, from from what remained of the bear, he was able to determine that that she had ingested about three to four grams of cocaine before she died. Um. That not, sounds not like pounds. that sounds like you a know. lot to me. Um, and it just it doesn't take several kilos to take down a bear, you know. No, and they they uh, also determined that the cocaine was ninety five percent pure. So when when you mix that purity with the amount that the bear consumed mm-hmm. and never having been exposed to it, um, well, so. Tell, um, for any of our listeners that aren't um, fluent or well-versed, I guess, in like narcotics, say, um, so the purity of cocaine means that it has not been cut, right? Sure. And what are some, tell us a little bit about what what and why somebody might use to, to cut the product, how that benefits. Oh, well, you know, when the cocaine comes into the country, it's pure. Mm-hmm. And so to gain the most benefit and, and make the most money out of it, they're going to split that kilo into two or three kilos, you know, through uh, other means, cutting it with other types of drugs, uh, cutting it with baking soda, Mm -hmm. you know, other uh, types of um, ingredients to make it go farther. Okay. And those times, and and even like today, you know, where they're cutting, cutting things with fentanyl, which is just... uh, no, a, a death threat. You know, yes. it's just a death wish, yeah. really. So, um, the uh, that's what the necropsy told us. 
we further determined that the parachute was identical to two other parachutes that were found in Georgia earlier in uh, the fall okay. before that December. Well, and I believe we've got a picture of you from a newspaper clipping. That's I true. think with Agent, is it Paul Loggins? Agent Loggins, um, yes. Examining the parachute. So we'll be sure that we put that up on our social media so that everybody can see that. That's you do true. look adorable. Oh, yes. A-line skirt, Farrah yeah. Fawcett hair. Oh, yeah, 1980s. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I mean, impeccable. Why would I ever have wore a skirt? Well, I mean, I you look pretty good for visiting a crime scene. So <laughs> that particular uh, parachute in uh, was found in Cherokee County, which uh, for people that don't know is just to the uh, it would be to the west of Fannin County, the southwest of Fannin County. So it was on the um, as we say, as the crow flies, it was on the route that he took. And another um, parachute with cocaine was found in just below Atlanta. Uh, in another county there. And uh, those were taken to the lab as well in inventory. So there was a total of recovered in Georgia um, prior to cocaine bear being discovered was 222 pounds of cocaine wow. in two different duffel bags and uh, actually three duffel bags and three parachutes. Uh, spanning... Well, at least a hundred miles. Nautical miles, yeah, at least at least that. Wow, yeah. crazy. Well, let's take a quick break, and we will come right back and learn more about the cocaine bear. Sounds good. All right, we're back, and as we took our quick pause for ads, I am sorry, Fran. I just cannot get over trying to imagine like how awful the smell was of the bear because I've always heard that you can smell a bear coming or um, I saw on social media recently, probably within the past year that um, somebody had been camping up in Tennessee and uh, a bear had gotten into her vehicle. I'm pretty sure it was a Jeep Wrangler and it just kind of ripped through the soft top and that the damage probably was not enough to total the car, but just the, the smell, just the oily sort of uber pungent, like bear bio on steroids smell. And I just, maybe this would be a good time to just commend our law enforcement officers for just, I mean, you're always in danger, right? And you're always have to have your head on a swivel, but you know, we don't think about some of these just ridiculous details or these crazy situations that you have to be in. And I, you know, it's, it's a good segue, I think, into how excited I am to have you tell these stories because I think that you've kept them locked up in your own personal vault for so long. I hope it's really like a cathartic release for you to finally share some of this. So it is um, one of the things you just made me think of was, um, as every uh, homicide officer knows, there is a distinct smell when you go into a house where someone has died. That smell never leaves you. You know it. You, you'll you'll always know it, mm -hmm. and it's um, it just it just permeates the room, and and uh, it's something you can't get away from. Haunting, really. It is, and I'm sure that the the stuff Clarice puts under her nose in oh, Silence of the Lambs put, is not enough. Put, we used to put Vicks vapor rub. Really? Yeah, I didn't know what the guys were doing at the first autopsy I went to. Yeah, and they were putting Vicks underneath their nose and just dabbing it on their upper lip. 
and they kind of were smirking and they, I'm like, what are they doing over there? <laughs> so finally I'm figuring I'm supposed to be a little strong, you know, I'm not supposed to be well, you know, sure, smelling yeah. this stuff in there over there with the mix. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. Well, um, all right. So we've got three parachutes yeah. spanning the top half of Georgia from exactly. almost the Tennessee border, yes. right? All yeah. the way down south of Atlanta. Mm -hmm. The bear is uh under autopsy necropsy right. right what happens next well the investigation continues and how it continues is we determined that uh, we find out through our investigation that faa had um plotted a plane that came off the coast and we were able to find the flight path that uh, paralleled where these airdrops of the parachutes with the duffel bags had been made. Is that like pinging? Is that what they call that as they're trying to establish the flight path? I know you're not FAA, but I've heard that term used. Similar. Yeah. It's similar to that. Okay. And I don't know really the logistics about it or the technology about that. I just know that they're able to do it. And so uh, we were able to find that information out, number one. Then we found out that this plane had crashed into the um, North Carolina mountains and it was put on autopilot. Then we found out that the pilot, there was actually two pilots on this plane. The pilot was uh, Andrew Thornton mm -hmm. and that uh, he had jumped uh, from the plane that crashed into North Carolina. He had jumped into um, the area of Knoxville, Tennessee. Uh, the kind of the, I don't know, really, I want to say sad part about it was, you know, he was a very braggadocious guy. Okay. He claimed to be a very uh, astute paratrooper. Uh, he was actually in the 82nd Airborne. And uh, he was a former Lexington, Kentucky police officer, narcotics officer. Unbelievable. And uh, he was he was a narcotics officer for about six years. And uh, then he, he left. He went to law school. I don't know if he ever got a law degree, but he did go to law school. And uh, so he had his fingers in a lot of pies back then. And <laughs> he uh, decided that he was going to go rogue. And he, I guess he wasn't making enough money. And he met up with a few good old boys and decided they were going to start importing uh, cocaine. So he uh, decided on this one occasion, obviously he had done this before, not sent the plane off to its demise. But sure. He had decided that he was going to um, jump. In my my investigation, although we never were was able to um, confirm this, was that at the this period of time in the 80s, the United States Customs had planes that were chasing aircraft oh, really? that were coming into the country illegally. Wow. So we felt like there was a chase plane on him. And no matter where he went, he was going to get caught. So he had no other choice. Well, yeah, why would somebody, why would he just kick out? That's my question. You know, is if you're intent, yeah, if your intent is to smuggle narcotics, using an airplane mm -hmm. i mean it, the plane's not cheap acquisition of the plane probably difficult because you're trying to find something that 
you know, is not already targeted, right? I don't know, serial numbers and all that kind of stuff. Um, You got to find somebody who's willing to fly it, knows how to fly that type of plane. So why, why destroy it? I mean, that's a great, I never stopped to think about the fact why he would crash this plane into a mountain. He had to have been tailed. Yeah. He was being followed. So in order not to get caught, he kicked out those, you know, three that we know of parachutes with the the 222 pounds of cocaine through just below Atlanta and all the way up to Fannin County where the bear got into it. And uh, when he jumped, uh, he, uh, his hand was still on the ripcord. So uh, we surmise along with the Kentucky police, uh, the Louisville police that um he, he was, by the way, found in a driveway, deceased, mm-hmm. uh, and the ripcord was not pulled. Uh, he was flying a Cessna, and it was a high-wing plane, meaning that the struts were supporting from the body of the plane. Sure, yeah. Supporting I the wing. I can picture that, yeah. So mm-hmm. I believe that he uh, either hit the strut or some part of the plane, the tail, when he jumped out of the plane, which knocked him out. yeah. Because he had a head wound. Okay. So that's uh, that's how he ended up not pulling the ripcord. They found him in the driveway. And uh, it's not really an, an amusing story. It's kind of a, kind of a, just a side story. The gentleman uh, that found him was an older gentleman, Fred Fred Myers was his name. He was in his 70s. And Mr. Myers lived alone. And uh, a member of his family would call him every day to check on him. He was probably, you know, uh, had lived alone for a while. And and a family member would just say, hey, how you doing? Mm-hmm. And do you need anything today from the store? Can I bring you some lunch? That kind of thing. Yeah. And so uh, a family member called him that morning and he and said, how you doing today, Fred? And he says, oh, I'm okay. I'm, I've had my medicine. I'm drinking my coffee. And uh, But there's this guy laying down on my driveway. And, and she said, well, okay. Well, I got to run to the doctor. I'll call you at lunch. She, didn't, she thought he was hallucinating. Sure. Just dreaming it up. Yeah. He was known to have a bit of dementia at okay. the time. So it wasn't really, you know, of a big concern. So time passed and she called him back at lunch and he said, "Um, well, I'm doing okay. Did you have your lunch? Yeah, I had my lunch, but that guy's still laying in the driveway. You think I should walk down there? And she said, well, I got to run to the store. Let me call you right back. So she goes to the store, time passes, and then she calls him back. And he says, well, I really think I'm going to walk down there because he's still in the driveway. Oh, Fred. And so finally, poor Fred, he goes down there and she calls the sheriff's office and they come out. And there is a picture in the in the Louisville, Kentucky newspaper that shows Thornton on the driveway with his parachute, his hand on the rip cord, uh, a duffel bag containing, uh, I think, 75 pounds of pure cocaine. Wow shaped like footballs. He had uh, seven or eight weapons and he had, uh, I think, s- s- several thousand dollars and gold coins as well. Wow. And uh, his story is quite magnificent when you start digging into his background and 
the things that he's done in his past, and uh, he's also uh, closely associated with some investigations regarding a murder of a young lady that he dated. Well, unfortunately, I feel that <clears throat> sort of that, you know, big scale narcotics trafficking, it's not victimless, you know, oh, no. truly, mm -hmm. we don't stop to think about what happens behind the scenes in order for this to be grown or manufactured and transported and all of that. And, um, you know, obviously there's, there's a story there too. So interesting, Andrew Thornton. Um, what happens once Fred, um, Fred's out of the picture now, right? The cops have, have, you guys have taken care of this scene. Um, you've taken his body off for autopsy. Were, was there any narcotics found in his system? Not that we know of. Not no. getting high on his own supply? No. No. Mm -mm. No, the uh, investigators up there started doing the legwork that found out, you know, where his, he actually had a compound. Uh, and he, they feel that he was trying to, you know, jump when he jumped, he was trying to jump into the area that was safe for him to, so he could store what he had on him. Um, the other pilot also jumped. Uh, he was never arrested. He was never charged. Uh, it's kind of, um, bizarre that they never did anything else with him. Now they know who he is. He's still alive, this other pilot. Now, was he ever a law enforcement no. Mm -mm. agent? No. Mm. I wonder how they stumbled across each other. And do you think that, you know, I mean, if so, if Thornton was being followed, right, and he had to just bail out of this plane, did he know this area at all? Is there anything that led you guys to determine that he was familiar with this area where he jumped? Because what would be his next step? Well, originally we thought, well, he was uh, kicking out the uh, duffel bags with the parachutes mm -hmm. in Georgia for a ground crew, which he hadn't been known to do through, you know, informant information. So, and what does that entail? That's just dumping the drugs and then letting somebody know the approximate exactly. geographic yeah. coordinates to come right. and yeah. make the pickup? GPS coordinates okay. and radio transmissions to tell them, hey, we've just done it. And okay. this is the, you know, this is the radius in the area that mm -hmm. it needs to be picked up in which is pretty common when they're doing airdrops. Now I feel like you can just put an air tag on it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you can do that today. Find no, my don't, iPhone. Don't give anybody any idea. Well, you right know, now. I mean, that's not what we're here for, but you know. But yeah, that could be done. And probably has been done. Probably. Probably. We're probably not the first ones to come up with that theory. But, but um, because of the fact that the, that the two other duffel bags were found with the cocaine mm -hmm. in them, tells me that he didn't have a ground crew to pick him up. Yeah. That um, he was being chased by customs. Wow. And kudos to customs. You know, they, they deserve a lot of credit. Yeah. That they don't ever, they're kind of, you don't ever hear about what they do, but they do a lot. So when was it that Thornton's body was found? You guys got the call December 20th mm -hmm. when the bear was found. Mm -hmm. But this story actually starts on September 11th of 1985. That's true. And is that the day that Fred found Thornton's body in his driveway? That's correct. September okay. the 11th of 85. So you go from September the 11th to December the 20th. That's how long the uh, 
the bear basically laid on the ground dying. Yeah. So do you guys assume from the necropsy that he had, she, actually the bear was a female. Yes. Um, had she found that load fairly soon after it oh, had yeah. landed? Yes. I think probably, uh, you know, when uh, the duffel bag hit the ground, it could have been that it broke open. Sure. And it has a very pungent odor you know the the bears can pick up on that and that's what they do they forage they forage for food they forage for anything especially in the winter in december they're looking for anything they can eat sure so i think that uh, is how she stumbled upon this and it's like oh good i found it well that had to be an interesting what few minutes i don't know i would hate to think think of the kind of death that she had but um hopefully she just consumed what she did and went right off to sleep and yeah. that was it. Well, it was all sort of found in very close proximity. So mm-hmm. again, to echo um, the, the story was... that's being told yeah. in the movie now, you know, we'll yeah, tell you did, something did, a lot more she grand. She didn't get up and go start, uh, you know, ramping, rampaging. She was starting in the bar fights. No, and, and trying to kill people. Right. And she didn't do any of that stuff. No, it's just uh, it's just Hollywood hype. You yeah. Know? I mean, I don't know. I, I'm a bit of a traditionalist in the respect that, I mean, this story is crazy enough, you know, this, to me without all of the know, absurd the, the, details. The weird thing about it is this is not the first time that a uh, animal has got into to cocaine. What? Yes. Well, what? This will be another, this will have to be another story for another day. Oh. But the tidbit about this is, um, and I'll give you a little bit of hint. In 1982, in September, it's actually September the 8th of 1982. Almost three years to the day before mm-hmm. this case starts. That's true. Um, I got a call that there was um, a cow in a pasture that had gotten into some white powder in a blue canister. In Gilmer County, Georgia. Oh, we're going to have to go down that road. Let's take a quick commercial break and we'll be right back. All right. This story, Fran, I'm so excited to finally hear the details about the bear. And I know that we're planning our second episode is going to be all about Andrew C. Thornton and more of his background and how this whole saga wrapped up. But... We have some other things we need to talk about, about the cocaine bear. Um, Help me figure out where she is. Well, about, I'm going to say it's about three, four months ago. I received a call from a reporter, a newspaper reporter in uh, Lexington, Kentucky. A lady, I don't recall her name. At this time, but she said. You've done uh, quite a few interviews lately. Yes, I have. Anyway, she said that um, she wanted to know if I was the agent on the cocaine bear. And I said, yes. And she said, well, I want to let you know that there is a store here in Lexington that claims they have your bear. And I said, what do you mean? She said, they are advertising the bear as the cocaine bear from Georgia. I said, it can't be. She I mean, said, your bear was in pretty bad shape. Oh, yeah. He could have never been taxidermied or she could have never been taxidermied. So she says to me, she says, I'm trying to prove that it is not 
the bear that it's all a hoax that you know this these people are just you know capitalizing on this and they're making mugs and they're making t-shirts and it's called the fun mall and it's in uh lexington kentucky and it's just like a you know it's like a souvenir shop okay yeah a little touristy yeah tourist yeah. place so anyway she said that um uh, she said i'm gonna do some more research but i wanted to let you know and i wanted to get your input of what you thought about this how can i you know what do you have to say about this the fact that they're saying that this fully grown bear is in, in the mall and it's got a placard around the neck saying you know, I'm the cocaine bear. With a backwards hat. Yeah. Yeah. And I said, <laughs> I said, well, let me ask you a question. Have you seen the bear? And she said, yeah. And I said, does it have any claws? And she said, well, I really didn't look. I said, you go back and look and take well, a picture of the claws. Yeah. You said that the claws were taken. We took some of the claws. Yes. That's right. And I said, that's one clue. I said, you call me back and tell me because you know, there's, there's your, there's one sign. And I know positively that that bear could never have been taxidermied. And she said, well, he's saying that he got the bear from Waylon Jennings and that the bear came from another place in Las, in uh, Las Vegas. And they got it from the Georgia uh, pathologist, you know? Yeah. I heard, I heard like a day spa in Reno had the bear and I mean, I'll be totally honest with you, Fran. I love Waylon Jennings. So for me, it would be just idyllic if, in fact, Waylon Jennings had owned the taxidermy cocaine bear. But alas, my dreams are dashed. There's no truth to that story. No. That that makes me <laughs> so fun. sad. Um, so this this spot in Kentucky is is there still somebody pursuing this story? I mean, how can we ever find out what actually happened to, I mean, I guess the, the carcass of your cocaine bear. I'm actually, I've actually pulled up something today. That's ridiculous. Uh, <laughs> it, it is a, it says cocaine bear presides over and affirms the union of two people today. The March, cocaine bear is ordained. Uh, Monday, March the 27th. Wow. At the Fun Mall in Lexington, Kentucky. The cocaine bear is ordained. Pablo Escobar is conducting a wedding ceremony today of all days. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Okay. Well, it's crazy to me that this case is going to rest in such infamy. And, you know, I think that it's really important, Fran. True crime is interesting to me because it delineates different types of people and different backgrounds and the psychology is intriguing but most importantly to me like local history i mean these are these are historical tales that you're telling and um you know i don't i don't know it's it's strange to see how this has blown up into such a a bizarre phenomenon but thank you for helping me to debunk you know what actually happened with this bear um, do you have any plans to go up to Kentucky and check the bear out yourself? Should we road trip? <laughs> well, I originally, I got pretty mad about it. I'm sure. I was, I was really angry. And, you know, I, it, it's all about the profit. It's yeah. all about the dollar. And, uh, I got pretty angry about it. And, um, I was going to go up there and like, you know, walk in and take a few pictures of the bear and just engage in conversation mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. But I said, no. 
and I'll pick my uh, my uh, demeanor would allow me to be a civil. So yeah. I ch yeah. chose the latter. You don't think you could keep your undercover uh, no. guys up? Mm -hmm. Well, maybe one of these days, um, you know, Fran and I both love antiques. Maybe we'll hit the road, go see what sort of wonderful Appalachian antiques I've, we I've can actually, find up there. I've actually heard. Check out the bear. Well, and since then, you know, I, that was the lady that called from Lexington. So time passed. Then I got a call from um, when I found out when they found out that they were going to make a movie. Mm -hmm. I found out that the Kentucky for Kentucky store had done uh, copyright protected the words cocaine bear and sold the rights of those words to Elizabeth Banks, who is actually the producer uh, of the movie. She is cocaine fabulous. Bear. I do love Elizabeth Banks. And, um, uh, so uh, they got quite a bit of money out of that. And yeah. now, you know, the store is probably, you know, rolling in dough. And um, the the other part of that is I got a call from um, Vanity Fair did a uh, editorial on what actually the truth is about the bear, mm -hmm. which was interesting that they would run that. And then I got a call from IT News in London, England, who has a crew here. And it was being... Um, Directed by Robert Palumbo, who's a Grammy Award winning, That's winning uh, person. And uh, he came down and we did a documentary about that. It's to be put on Peacock. So those are things that are going to happen. And um, most recently, I also got a call from Natalia Martinez, who works for Wave TV. Okay. In um, in uh, Tennessee, and uh, she did a documentary about Andrew Thornton, and um, in her documentary, uh, it's it's pretty elaborate. She it's about a thirty minute piece, but she called me and she sent it to me, and she said, "You're not going to believe this, but um, the." Um, there's a company that wants to buy the bear that was that's in the mall that's in the Kentucky for Kentucky more mall. And I said, who is it? She said, it's Ripley's believe it or not. No way. Well, you know, I feel like Ripley's will do the homework. They'll do the due diligence and the research and find out if it's really the bear or not. Yeah. I mean, let's hope, right. It'd be great to finally put it to rest because Look, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go with what you say. You are the special agent in charge here, and if you're telling me that there's no way that bear could have reasonably been taxidermied, I nope. I believe you. Incredible. Well, look, if you have questions about the cocaine bear and this story, um, we'll put a Q and A up under our episode information on Spotify. We would love to hear from you guys. Um, thank you so much for listening. Fran, we did it. We've recorded our first episode. And um, I'm so proud of you for sharing your story. I cannot wait to hear the rest of them. There's so many cases to get into. Narcotics, homicide. I mean, you've got some major, major stories that were huge in Georgia in the 80s, which was kind of the beginning of, of the narcotic smuggling through our state, right? Yes, it was. Spent many a, many a night uh, 
on dirt strips and air strips waiting for them to come in. Well, and I think what's extra super cool is that we actually are going to have some of Fran's agent friends joining us in future episodes to share their stories as well. Gary, right. your boss, whom you've mentioned before. Um, I'm so excited to get into this and we hope that you guys enjoyed it. It would be wonderful and very helpful for us if you could follow us on Spotify and whatever platform that you're listening on. Um, share with your friends, give us a like, um, rate, review, subscribe sort of thing. So uh, Fran, thanks again. I can't wait to get back together and wrap up the cocaine bear story uh, with another episode about Andrew Thornton soon. Well, thank you, Danielle. I want to say live life to the fullest. Focus on the positive. And please behave. Thanks for listening. Snow in the Mountains is recorded in North Georgia by Fran Bishop and co-host and producer Danielle Eigelhart. Follow us on social media at snowinthemountains.pod or email us at snowinthemountainspodcast at gmail.com. Please be sure to rate, review, subscribe, and follow to help us out. And be sure to listen in every Wednesday for a brand new episode. Thank you.